This is Straight Talk in the COVID Economy, and my name is Larry Quick. Our world has changed and there's no going back. The COVID economy is now very real. We are adapting to telework, Zooming, online learning and new industries like PanSafe and other opportunities revealed by COVID-19. The challenges are also with us. Bankruptcies, unemployment, debt and confusion. In Straight Talk in the COVID economy, we meet thinkers and innovators who bring insight and information into the opportunities and risks of our rapidly emerging COVID economy. Straight Talk in the COVID economy is brought to you by Resilient Futures. This is alongside our partner, Impact Africa Network. Impact Africa Network is a non-profit startup studio in Nairobi on a mission to ensure young, talented Africans have a chance at participating in the digital transformation of Africa as creators and owners. If grassroots change is something that excites you, visit www.impactafrica.network. By doing that, you'll be able to support as donors and mentors the Impact Africa Network. Hi, and welcome to today's uh, podcast. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be with Barry O'Reilly today. Um, I've been taken by his uh, new book, um, Unlearn, um, which has is, is just opened up a whole bevy of things, uh, um, questions and answers to what we believe is a really essential part of how you come to terms with the COVID economy and any particular large disruption, particularly a global disruption such as this. So hi, Barry, how are you doing? Great, Larry. Uh, delighted to be here. Thanks again for inviting me on. Looking forward to a fun and lively conversation, I expect. Uh, I think with that, you know, Barry's obviously from San, San Francisco. Not really. He's a, an Irishman living in, lived in London and also lived in Melbourne for some time. And uh, that's um, a, a great universal experience. Given that I've, I've actually lived in Perth, Melbourne. Then I went to live in London, oh, Nottingham. London, Spain for a brief while, and then back to Australia, Melbourne, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, um, and then back to Victoria. So we've, we've been following each other. I think you've been stalking me actually, Grace, but I won't talk about that. Thanks um, very much. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let me just tell you a bit about, about Barry, but you know, just Google Barry and, and uh, you'll, you'll find um, a lot that is very, very useful. Um, so Barry's mission is to help purposeful technology-led businesses innovate at scale. Um, his work was, he works with business leaders and teams that seek to invent the future, not fear it. And that's right up our alley. You know, the future is not to be feared. It's something that we can work with. If you fear something, you're never gonna go near it. But you know, I think Barry um, uh, and his work embraces that. Uh, he's been an entre entrepreneur, employee and consultant and after several startups, he shifted to, uh, towards the enterprise. Uh, and that intersection, which is a really important intersection between business model innovation, um, and that's a profit model innovation, if you like, as well as product development, organizational design and culture transformation. And that really shows off the, the importance of a whole system in an organization. You can't just work in one area, you have to be understanding that uh, in our view, say innovation around business model innovation, product development, all go together, but the organization has to deliver that through its design and its culture. Now, he's authored two international bestsellers, of which I'm a fan of both. Uh, the first one you'll know Barry from is The Lean Enterprise, 
um, how high performance organizations innovate at scale, a, a groundbreaking uh, book and uh, one that's on my shelf. Uh, and a new one, which is Unlearn, let go of past success to achieve extraordinary results. I'm gonna talk a bit more about that in a second, but that is a, a, a must read book. Uh, I don't have a copy to show you right now, but if you go to any of your preferred uh, booksellers, you'll see it there. Uh, he's obviously an international uh, sought-after keynote speaker. Um, I caught him briefly on, a, I think it was a Cisco presentation just done recently, um, and that was uh, great. It's, I think it's up on the web. Go and have a look at it. Um, uh, also uh, contributed to, to um, one of my favourite magazines, The Economist, and Strategy Plus Business, and the MIT Sloan Management Review. He's also on the faculty of uh, Singularity University um, with um, that bunch um, in San Francisco and throughout the globe. Um, so Barry, welcome once again. Thank you for being here. For today, I thought what would be a good idea um, is that just a bit of background, you know, the disruption of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, it's seen a massive drop off in organisation performance, like that's gone bang, 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 bang. And what we tend to see in this type of environment where performance drops very quickly um, over time, it's like a very brief time. This has happened globally. So it can happen sometimes in very short bursts in certain geographic locations based on local conditions. But this is a global thing. It's not something that is easily sort of shrugged off because uh, COVID-19 uh, is a pandemic in all its force in a globalised economy, different to the 1819 uh, pandemic, uh, the uh, Spanish flu, where there was very little, um, a lot of transmission throughout the world as a pandemic, uh, mainly because of soldiers returning home from the First World War. But obviously today what we've had is such a globally connected supply chain and holiday makers business travel, through airline travel, etc., that have made it very, very difficult to contain. And also in great uh, large um, or, um, countries that are used to internal transport, it's very, very hard to uh, contain the people spread out all over the place. And very, very hard to identify a vaccine, even though there's a lot of people trying to do that. It's more than likely going to take some time to do it. So the COVID economy has emerged very, very quickly. And that's it from an, a learning and unlearning perspective where we know what was happening in 2019, the good, the bad, and the not so good, the ugly, if you like. Now we have another set of situations where the information of the past isn't necessarily the information of the future in the COVID economy. So that, you know, the unlearning part for me, Barry, is that um, we're not working at the moment, not just with skills, it's about mindset, skill set and strategic focus. We're still focusing on what was the past rather than what needs to be the future. And that gets to the idea of the book, which is, you know, um, let go of past success to achieve extraordinary results by unlearning. So, you know, and what we said, and what we talked about this before we started, is that when you go down in performance and you continue to go down and you can't quite get anything to work, you start investing in business as usual. Um, which is business gone bad now. So, you know, I think you said in one of your points on retail was that, you know, don't try and make just 
the retail experience better, you've got to change the whole notion of what retail is. So, you know, um, I'd open up by saying that, you know, um, what we are very, very aware of is madness, um, MAD, managed adaptive decline, where you throw good money after bad um, by investing in things to try and get back to what you were before, but really it's not the place to go. So you have to deal with that complexity. Um, and I had, um, I was speaking to Rebecca Costa just recently, and she said, um, uh, one of her statements is we have to learn to deal with complexity, which is basically learning new things. You know, we have to deal with that complexity in picoseconds. We have to really get good at dealing with complexity. So um, my opening question for Barry was, you know, how do you unlearn as a way of learning and relearning when things are changing so fast? Yeah, I think well, like one, one of the key sort of prompts for me to help people even diagnose they're in that situation is I really get them to think about you know, are they clear on the outcomes they're actually trying to achieve? Most of the time, people, when they're responding to a decline or a shock to the system, they, they are you know, in, in chaos or they don't know exactly what to do. So you have these two notions. You have the people that stop, freeze, pause, wait and see what happens, um, or, and, and that, which is a massive problem in itself. Um, because, you know, with a lot of this stuff, you have to learn your way through it, right? Complexity, uncertainty, when you don't know what the right answer is, you can't wait, you can't stop. You're like all these companies that are stopping production in COVID, stopping innovating, stop pausing big initiatives, pausing, you know, they're not going to learn anything through this situation. You know, they, they might see what other companies do and try and replicate that, but it's, it's but another company is really learning. They're just trying to copy you know, so I think a lot of what I get the leaders to get focused on is what are some of the real outcomes that they actually are aiming for? Um, and then asking them the simple questions, right? Like, where are you not living up to those expectations? Where are you struggling to achieve the outcomes? Where, where are you tried everything you can think of and you're not getting the breakthrough you're looking for? Is there situations you're avoiding? Um, you know, like these are all signals that when you have those types of challenges that are, are spawned from not getting your outcomes, from struggling to come up with a solution, avoiding situations or tried everything you can think of, they're all signals that your existing behavior and thinking is not working. Um, and maybe to your point, that's where you know, people go to what's known to them. They stick to what's comfortable. And yet the comfortable behaviors probably are accelerating their decline as you're describing here because they're no longer relevant in the new context. The world has changed, technology's changed, customer demand has changed, and yet you're still executing the practices of a paradigm that no longer exists anymore. So you're sort of almost accelerating uh, down to your uh, madness idea. You know, and I think that that's a tough part for leaders to recognize these sort of inflection points is when do I realize I need to make the change? And to do that, you need to have a system in place. And you know, the way we know how to explore uncertainty and complexity as safely as possible is to get clear on the outcomes we're aiming for and then run or take small steps or experiments to learn our way towards the direction we believe is correct. And you know, anyone can build that system into the way they operate. But I think sometimes that goes out the window when there's chaos and uncertainty, people panic or they stick to what they've always done. And, um, you know, that, that sadly 
you know, most organizations in, in the situation that's been triggered by COVID are really going to struggle because the paradigm they think exists no longer exists. Their behaviors that maybe worked in the past, will they work in the future? Or they're just freezing and waiting to see what happens that are not learning anything or they're not, they're not creating information to understand what to do. I think any companies in those scenarios are, are in real trouble and creating it for themselves, if we're honest. I think, um, you know, the very specific types of companies I work with or leaders I look for are the people that see uncertainty as opportunity, that manage uncertainty by thinking big and starting small, taking small steps to learn what works, what doesn't, recoverable situations, and build the capability to explore uncertainty in a systematic and safe manner. Um, and I'll you know happily share lots of examples of that as we go on in the show, but that's what wins. And we're only going to have more and more shocks to the system, more unanticipated shocks to the system. Uh, so if you haven't built this muscle to continuously adapt to changing circumstances, to learn your way through uncertainty, um, you know, you're, you're really going to struggle. That's uh, when you talk about build muscle, it's sort of like a, um, a what we, we talk about in our methodology strategy in action uh, is uh, building a, a, an internal sort of um, algorithm, to take on al an internal algorithm that where uncertainty is the norm. And you, uh, you know, you hear it often when people say, well, you're not going to get mining companies to invest um, or whatever large companies, they're not going to invest unless they've got certainty. And my sort of sense of that is, when was there ever certainty? You know, particularly when you look at exponential change across factors like, you know, degrading planet, a um, uh, financial services system that serves, you know, that has by its own volition centered uh, wealth in such a small corner. So, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got you know, liquidity breakdown that's liquidity has just collapsed, you know, and um, people are hoarding money at, you know, the one percenters in America um, uh, haven't allowed the flow of um, capital to let labor grow, if you want to put it in those terms. So there's an immense amount of uncertainty already and I just wonder if it's people don't understand that having certainty is is a pretty BS um, thing to have, you know? Yeah, I th but I think, you know, one of the things we talk a lot about in the book is people's conditioning, right? Your leadership conditioning. And, and to many people, we've been sort of sold the certainty dream to a certain extent, right? Like you'll be successful on the project if you deliver it on time, on budget, on scope, if you manage your output. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of that harks back to industrial era world where, you know, you had one or two educated people, they did all the thinking, broke work down into discrete tasks and handed it out to people to execute. And the way they monitored or measured productivity was the, you know, the amount of work that was executed. You know, and so, so there is, they, they, you're doing repeatable problems, right? You're making nuts and bolts in a factory line, you're making a car, there's low variability in the product that you're creating. 
um because you you decide what that product is and you push it to the market um i think the world we operate in now is the absolute inverse of that you know the the dynamics outside of your control are much stronger forces so customer demand changes technology changes and um, you know public health issues change the way that we operate and so you know you're more of a ship at sea just trying to f- guide your way to where you're trying to go where before you could actually dictate you know if you'd be in land on water and it's 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 just very different sort of dynamics but most people are still trained um in management schools on theories around executing work you know the amount of execs i work with and coach in fortune 500 companies who've you know built their brand on delivering on time or are never are perfect results or you know it's it's just very difficult for them to understand that the control has changed and the you know the, the control they need to create is actually through experimentation testing and learning and being good at describing goals um setting good constraints having a, a good values that you want your work to be executed by and then making space for people to explore paths to get there and um you know like there's there's a, there's the companies that are the biggest companies in the world now are they're very intentionally designed to make that happen you know when you go into amazon there are leadership principles there's 14 of them you know they're the values the, the principles the behaviors that they ask people to live by day to day and they're not just up on the wall people live them right so when you're sitting in a meeting people will say are we thinking big enough about this if they're having lots of debate and it's going around in circles somebody will say can we disagree and commit to just one path and testing this for a short period of time like they they live these sort of principles and you know th- th- that's what allows these ideas to permeate through that company you know bezos was a he actually was a hedge fund manager before he got into Amazon. He knows about optionality. He knows about making bets in the market, recognizing some will fail and some, the ones that return will have, you know, a hundred time X return all the failures that you've had because you're investing in information. You're investing in finding out, should we keep doing this, stop doing this or do something different? And I think a lot of people are still talk about in, in like return on investment which again is a, is a ridiculous question to ask in innovation because you've no idea when you make a bet what the return is going to be. But what you want to ask yourself is what do I want to learn from this bet and how is that going to inform the next bet I make? Where I think what people still are harking on is that I've given you money, now where's my thing? Yeah. I want to better deliver on what you said it would. I want to better deliver on all these financial returns you promised it would. And that's just trying to predict the future with no information, which is not control at all. Well, um, so many thoughts. Um, I'm just thinking Taylor's got a lot to answer for um, in the, his, what was it, Theory X? He was a Theory X, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, if you think about that industrial viewpoint that's been brought through uh, into an age which was completely different as to when he actually made that assertion, you know, um, just, you know, in my lifetime, I was born in 1950, but I just think back to my first job in a bank, which was all manual. You know, there was no, there was nothing that was, didn't, didn't even know what a computer was, but no one knew what a computer was. Um, 
but you know if you think about um, um, what you said there in terms of uh, innovation, we talk about um, uh, in strategy and action uh, you, the, the output of a strategy in action is a catalytic action where you test the conditions to see what the return is so you you, 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 you've got a, you've made a decision to take certain catalytic action to build a capability. You test that with an experiment and you continue to test the conditions and you um, uh, have a, a mindset that allows you to change rapidly based on feedback rather than we're gonna go in there all guns blazing. And it's sort of like, if you put it into sort of military parlance, it's not D-Day, necessarily it's guerrilla warfare and the sort of D-Day, I hate to talk in military terms, but the D-Day um, experience um, that is now the, tends to be the American view of war has never won since the Second World War. It's been little guerrilla tactics that test conditions and do what makes best at the time. So. Um, moving right away from the war analogy, it's sort of picking up on that experimentation, catalytic action. How do you, how do you uh, understand what's going on enough to make a catalytic action test whether that's actually there? And I, I love what you said about uh, well, the Amazon 14 principles are really worth uh, looking at um, because as a guiding, sort of guiding principles, I think they, or they, at least they work for Amazon. Um, return on investment, a ridiculous concept in innovation, I can't agree more, is what we're going to do is um, we're going to uh, um, try something completely different that's never been done before, really, or even if it's a minor deviation, but it's got to produce. And I remember working with our local um, tech company, uh, telecom here, you'd know them, Telstra. And we did an innovation project and they said that um, the innovations needed to present, to, to deliver at least $100 million in net profit. And I said, well, we're gonna do this project and and it comes out, it's gotta produce $100 million. Yes, that's just not worth doing. And I said, but what happens if you've got something that could produce $10 million that opens up to something that produce $50 million that opens up something that can produce a billion dollars? And, you know, and these, that time we did that, it was looking at how you use text, you know, and sort of like that's in the days, you know, I think uh, 3G had just come out and text was available. So, you know, a company like Telstra has never produced an innovation in its life. It basically hasn't got away from being a utility, um, as opposed to other telecoms that have done fantastic work in that area. You know, our telecoms industry here is really under threat because it still plays out the old telecommunications narrative. And that is that we provide pipes for, for bits of information. Um, but that's, a, you know, we've just put the NBN in here um, and uh, they're going to 5G. They have no services to go on top of it that they own. They've imported all the services from Google, etc. So, you know, you've got a classic example 
of an organization that can't unlearn um, itself and will take itself into huge investments in 5G, which, you know, it's going to happen. Um, but, um, you know, you've got Amazon, Google, Tesla putting up these arrays of, um, of communication satellites up there that, you know, 5G will support 5G, but it, it creates the lowest common denominator um, um, bandwidth seller for a, tes a Telstra. You know, one of the services they're going to add value add on top of that. You know, it's sort of like a classic example of ROI being a ridiculous concept. Um, and, you know, using innovation is the next thing to learn. It's finding out the next thing to learn. You know, making no, those probes. Yeah, I, th I think that's the most important part. And again, it goes back to setting up this system of like, what's the outcomes you're aiming for? You know, like the, the, the you know, it, it's very easy and comfortable for companies to keep doing what's known to them, right? No one's going to get fired for improving the quality of the speed on a pipe on communications data, right? They're, they're following the trend of new technology innovation becomes available, Oh look! Everybody seems to be going from copper wires to fiber. Let's let's put fiber in the ground, and you know, like it, it it's activity for sure. But I think, um, I know it it's needed to be done to stay like like at pace at what technology innovations are. But you're you're not thinking about um, and as Amazon would say, thinking bigger about what are the opportunities here. Like how how are having some of this infrastructure in place. What are some of the trends you're seeing in customer behavior? What are the trends you're seeing in geopolitical movements? Where where are people working? What are they doing differently? How how are they responding? And you know, you, uh, to your point on COVID, right? There's a there's a reason some companies have not even skipped a beat with the transition to remote working, and other companies have found it uh, in, incredibly difficult, right? Because They've never designed their organization to have flexible working, to allow people, you know, have access to simple things like their email from home. Maybe some people didn't want it. You know, it's like, why I, I work in the office? Why would I ever need that? Or, you know, so I, I, I'm part of a lot of uh, CIO groups of uh, Fortune 500 companies, and many of them were thinking about how do we get people laptops so they can just actually work from home or, one case study I wrote with Tesco's bank was how they were able to stand up their customer support service, uh, support literally in three and a half weeks when they had to move everybody remotely. And, you know, you now have support staff working at home where they have to access systems that were currently behind closed doors or not exposed to the outside world. And, you know, there, so there's, there's a lot of challenges that these companies are have to respond to. Um, and, you know, many companies who were just reticent to, to ever not let people be in the factory, because if they left the factory, how can we monitor what work they're doing? You know, and um, it's I think, you know, one of the gifts maybe of COVID is that the organizations that have set themselves up well, that are outcome focused, that are focused on performance, not productivity, they're focused on achieving the outcomes they're aiming for, how people get there giving them more control about how they might do that. You know, one of the healthcare companies I work with for years, they were like, you know, we can't let our support staff work from home. They need to be in the office. They'll, they'll be less productive. 
And, you know, with a task like that where you're, you know, the metrics are well understood, average call handling time, close rates, open rates, to, you know, all, all of this sort of knowns, you know, when they move people um, to let that will force them to have to work remotely, they actually saw productivity improvements because people had more focus on when they were working at home. They didn't have to commute places and they knew all the metrics to manage to because they were well understood. So it didn't matter where people were. Teams knew the impact of the effort that they were making and was it maintaining the level of performance that they had before. So you'd given people the tools, the measurements, the dashboards, the to tell them, are they moving at the right speed? Are they still doing things the same way that they were? All, all these guides rails were in place or conditions, maybe as you might describe them. And they were just given to people and let them own them and be accountable for them. You know, and, and then people do great work. And yes, you know, and, and so many of the notions go against that is to keep people in the office, in the factory, make sure they're at their desk at nine, you know, make sure they work late if they're behind. How long was that lunch break you took? What, who, why are you talking to that person over there? Like all of this ridiculous stuff that has really no bearing other than just demotivating people in, their, in the way they work and managing their output and activities. It's, it's just such a failed system. And again, it, at the time, maybe when Taylor, again, defined what he thought to be successful at that stage, they were good models at that stage. We were, we were, we were, doing repeatable manual work that we were trying to automate, you know? So sure, break down the tasks into smaller discrete units and execute them. Makes sense, but we're just not doing that work anymore. And yet people are still holding on to those mental models of the world. And that's like these, when people miss these on learning moments, the world has changed and yet they're using methods and mindsets from a legacy and outdated or no longer exists paradigm. Um, but yet that's all they've ever been conditioned to. And I think, um, you know, whether it's a company like Telstra, as you've described, or, you know, any organizations that that's not actively investing in getting outside their comfort zone, getting outside um, and experiencing what new technologies mean for their business, investing and finding out what they could potentially yield, they're just going to miss out. Um, and they will be left, as you described, with, you know, like holding on to the, the real utility, the, the parts of the business that nobody else wants to manage. And, um, yeah, look, as soon as these satellite networks are up and running, you know, like they're going to be able to connect to more people. You're less physically constrained by space. You don't have to dig up the roads. You know, like uh, the whole thing changes again. And yet you know, you're, you're going to be left. And, and this might not be a great situation where potential, a lot of um, infrastructure that society relies on will be owned by a few private companies, mm. right? And um, that, will, again, will only accelerate more centralization of wealth. And is that right? What's the right balance? Where, you know, and so there's a lot of sort of stuff to happen here. And if we're not intentional about how we design the systems around how these businesses are created and how they're acting and, you know, so it's in our interest to foster innovation in all companies to keep competition in place, to, to keep creativity open, to offer alternative solutions and paths 
because otherwise, again, we, you know, today we're here on like August 25th and, you know, the top five companies and the S&P 500 account for 20% of the value of the whole stock market, which yeah. is Amazon, Apple, Alphabet, yeah. Facebook, you know, and, and Microsoft. And we haven't had that concentration of wealth in 50 years from the 70s. And so, again, I think there's a lot that we need to start asking ourselves here um, that we should really be encouraging innovation everywhere. Um, otherwise, we might end up with a society in a situation we don't actually all uh, want. Well, and that was it. I think, you know, progressing something that we've already got, uh, if you look at concentration of wealth at the moment. And uh, we talked about this at the opening that, um, uh, or Priya, our, our start, where we, 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 uh, we think that, um, you know, where you have concentration of wealth, and that's controlled wealth, so you have controlled liquidity. You know, it's sort of like all the water is in one dam and uh, that uh, gets to choose where the water goes. Uh, so you're, uh, you know, when people say trickle-down economics, you know, is the way to go, um, that's constraining innovation and, and controlling and centralising innovation that can happen around capital. You know, if you don't open those um, those um, uh, those faucets up to let the water out, uh, so it can it can fertilise, if you like, or grow different parts of different uh, in people's ideas and think, thinking, etc., you're going to get very a very stagnated um, uh, economy. So you know, I, I think the, the you know your point on um, uh, foster um, innovation to keep competition, concentration and, and looking at the concentration of wealth is a critically important part, particularly when you look at you know, the impending economic breakdown that's coming very, very soon as the real second wave of the social economic impacts of, um, of the COVID economy, um, of, of COVID-19. But it is part of the COVID economy is that, you know, a shake-up is coming. You know, if you look at, um, uh, you know, you talked about it in terms of uh, more shocks coming. This is sort of COVID-19 related, but not COVID-19 uh, as necessarily the specific cause. You know, we've got the collapse of financial systems. I mean, the stock market in America is going crazy at the moment. I think it's just basically out of control on wish lists and whims. But the, um, um, the, you know, if you look at um, liquidity in terms of uh, debt, uh, you know, if there's debt somewhere, someone's got to own the debt. Uh, so that concentration of wealth owns a lot of debt that is sovereign and domestic, which it all ends up being domestic, you know, taxpayer debt plus home, home, home household debt. Um, I wonder, to get your thoughts on unlearning uh, the old economic model. Uh, well, I think, I think that's a massive question to answer in five minutes, I'll be honest. You know, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we, we, there's always a balance, right? Like the, the people that take the risk, who start businesses, who 
our entrepreneurial nature to cr- create in the world you know like like they, they there there's a there's a nobleness in that and it's it's that that's what they're they're seeking to do now should should they be so well remunerated that they have um you know millions and billions of dollars like of of capital sitting in a bank account that will never be used i i don't that doesn't really make sense to me um not everybody has the opportunity to your damn analogy to even be entrepreneurial when they're just trying to survive because they're in such poverty and um difficult situations you know so you know i i think what's much more interesting to me is how how we give everybody opportunity and so we don't have such inequality and i think that that's that's the that's what forces the anger for people yeah. you know like um you know in many ways we have a lot to be thankful for for jeff bezos and what he has managed to create in the world um and at the same time, you know, it's not good enough that huge populations of the planet um, have no access to clean water or uh, are hungry every day. That That's not acceptable either. And, uh, you know, I think we we need to fix that. And, you know, it's it's um, like that's one of the reasons I really like this idea of the global grand challenges that Singularity represents. I. I like the sustainability goals that the UN has tried to uh, put on top of mind for people. And, you know, COVID provides us with an opportunity to be at our best in a crisis, to learn how we cope with that. And, you know, we've seen throughout the globe, some people have led and been impeccable. I think uh, the New Zealand government did an amazing job as an example of that, for instance. Um, Other countries, not so good. You know, I'm here in the US where, at times, you know, you wonder, have people given up on, on trying to actually solve this crisis? And um, so it's tough, you know, and there are 17 sustainability goals that the UN have identified from poverty to education to things that really matter, you know, and COVID is, is, isn't even one of those, you know, and so we, we, we have a chance to learn, again, through this crisis to be better prepared for the future because we have much more bigger challenges, whether it's the climate crisis, whether it's poverty, whether it's education for all, uh, inequality. These are big problems that we're not going to solve on our own. No, no one country is going to solve them. No one person is going to solve them. So I think we, we need to start thinking more about, and, and this notion of thinking bigger, like push up for bigger goals, because then everybody can get behind them rather than small localized goals. Like, can I be richer than the person beside me? Or, you know, can I have a bigger exit than the company down the road? Or, you know, like these things sort of just become trivial then when you start to think about bigger and think about uh, societal problems, systemic level problems, and then everybody can get behind them. So I think that's more my nature of these things is, um, the unlearning is probably to stop being so individually a stick and start thinking bigger about societal level, system level challenges and how you can start small and individually contribute to solving those bigger systemic level problems. I'm, I'm interested also 
uh, on a tweet that uh, you put up, um, and before I go to that tweet, um, th there's one thing that, that we've um, recognised uh, very well throughout the years in studying disruption, is that the, um, when you get severe drop-off, whether, uh, whether it be local, localised drop-off or, um, you know, like one organisation tends to fail, um, or, you know, a, uh, it happens at a sort of a community level or it happens at a, a, um, a, um, um, a global a country or global uh, level. At a global level, when it happens, it's sort of more important that values tend to um, go out, can go out the window. Um, and that becomes an issue of... Um, uh, more disorientation, because when you know, when you've got a big drop off in performance, um, you get confused. The why, what should I do? You know, and what you're looking at then to go forward is to solve the issues that you have uh, that you see in a complex environment. It becomes more complex, appears more complex. Um, what holds people together when information and rules sort of tend to disappear? Uh, is values and um, that what do you value becomes a central central question uh, for people. But what is it you really value right now? If you're going to innovate right now, what do you value? You know, what's and what value are you going to give to somebody? You know, because what I value is my values. You know, are, are my values that then goes into an organisation which in most cases prior to today and more than likely into the future, is that a company's values are what you have to put into a book or a chart that's up on the wall. And then that is buffeted around by whatever an advertising um, agency tells you. You should tell people that you value. So somehow they're misguided uh, interpretation of your values that makes it, you know, um, uh, some sort of connection. So I then say something like, you know, uh, my supermarket are the fresh food people, or my bank is is, is about more than money, you know, uh, and these ludicrous statements. When you stop and think about them from a values perspective, just don't make sense. You know, how can a, how can a supermarket say we're a fresh food people? How, how can they do that? Because there's nothing fresh, really. You know, even the tomatoes are most probably six months old have been, or whatever they might be. But it's impossible to have be the fresh food people when 80% of your stuff is processed. You know, and a bank is like, oh, more than money? I, I, well, I think, I think really what this comes down to, though, in terms of a thinking big but starting small is, you've got to live your values, right? So if, if, if hypocrisy or, and untruth is something you stand against, then don't support companies that, that demonstrate that. And I think um, that's what we all have to do, right? We all have to take small little actions every day that are aligned to something bigger, um, but demonstrate our values and live our values. Um, and I think if we can do that, I think we can have a really a much bigger impact than people realize. And it's been great to see many of the sort of shifts in 
lots of movements over it through COVID, whether it's the Black Lives Matter movement here to recognize racial inequality in North America or throughout the globe, whether it's people sort of um, not supporting or, or calling Facebook out for not recognizing hate that they were supporting on their platform. This is where they're your values, right? I sold all my Facebook stock for the specific value that I didn't share the values that same values that Mark Zuckerberg is demonstrating around supporting or not uh, stamping out hate on Facebook as a platform. <clears throat> so that's not my value. So I don't own Facebook shares anymore. Um, and that's the way I can defund them. Yeah. And anyone can do that. So I think that's the you know, small action, I would say, for people to think about what they can do every day. Um, but yeah, it's been great to uh, join you on the podcast. And thank you very much for you know, like all the, these questions. I, I'm very excited to hear how your audience responds to this stuff. And again, they can reach out and uh, chat to me and on the, um, on barryoreilly.com pretty much everywhere on the web. And <clears throat> it's a pleasure, Larry, for having a chance to chat to you today. Wonderful, mate. Thanks so much for your time. And we'll speak again soon, hopefully. I look forward to it. Cheers. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this Straight Talk in the COVID Economy podcast. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. For more free content that will enhance your understanding of this new COVID economy and the actions that you can take to leverage disruptive change, join the Resilient Futures Network at www.resilientfutures.com slash get started. And please support our partner, Impact Africa Network at www.impactafrica.network. We need all the support we can to help them build their own incubator. We know that there are many other great podcasts out there and your time is precious and you chose to listen to this great talk in the COVID economy. And we appreciate that. Thank you.